Revelation chapter number three is where we're going to be tonight. Revelation chapter number three. And uh, we'll be reading the first six verses. We've been going through this series called Marks of a Healthy Church. And basically what we've been doing is going through the different churches of the New Testament. We started with the very first church uh, there in Acts chapter number two after uh, they were saved and baptized, those 3,000 souls that were saved and baptized and, and added to the church and, and uh, what they did there in the first church. Then we looked at the church at uh, Thessalonica, and we've looked at the church at Ephesus, and we've looked at the church at uh, Thessalonica and Philippi and Colossae, and uh, we've looked at the church at Rome, the churches of Galatia. And then we went and started looking at the churches in the book of Revelation that were addressed um, in chapters 2 and 3, and uh, we're at, we're at uh, church number 5 tonight, the church at Sardis. And so Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 is the record of, of that church. And if you're there, uh, would you please stand and join me as we read this together? And we stand out of reverence and respect for the Word of God as we read it together. Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 1, the Bible says this, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment." And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And let's pray one more time together. Lord, thank you for how you've worked in our hearts already this service, through the music, through even the, the memory verses that these children uh, quoted a few moments ago. Lord, thank you for your word now, and I pray that you would Speak to our hearts in a special way from your word. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to not only hear what you have to say, but help us to uh, be good doers of the word as well as hearers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Just to give us a quick little background on the city of Sardis. Uh, most people don't quite know the, the history of that or really what it was all about, but Sardis was the capital of the ancient Roman province Lydia. You think, Lydia? I thought she was the uh, first convert in Philippi. Yes, she was, but there was also a, a Roman province named Lydia. Now, I don't know if, I doubt it was the same. Uh, that's just coincidence, I believe. Um, but Sardis was the capital of the ancient Roman province Lydia, and it was geographically located as the junction of five major trade routes. So as a result, Sardis was the first city in that part of the world that was converted by the preaching of, of John. It was kind of a, a, a hub of transportation because of the, where it was located. It was also known as a wealthy and wicked city. The citizens of Sardis lived in luxury, which of course 
did not lead to moral decency. It actually led to moral decadence and decline. Because usually when we're given much, uh, that usually doesn't cause people to seek the Lord. Sardis was also the first uh, that revolted from Christianity, unfortunately, and one of the first that was laid in its ruins in which it still lies without any church or ministry. So that's really kind of where this church was. Uh, but let's kind of dive into this passage here and, and, uh, and, and find out, first of all, what the reputation of this church really was. In verse number 1, it says, On the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works. You remember, as we've gone through these different churches here, these different letters to the churches in the, in, in the Re- book of Revelation, each one of them, it is commented that the Lord knows their works. And uh, just a quick reminder that the Lord does know what goes on in all of His churches, including Cornerstone Baptist Church. He knows and cares about what happens here at Cornerstone Baptist Church. But then it goes on to say that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. What a horrible testimony and a horrible reputation. A couple things I want us to notice about this reputation of this church. Fully, first, it was fully weighed by the Lord. In other words, it was this reputation was not just hearsay. It was fully weighed by the Lord. This came from God Himself. How many of you have ever... Uh, worked at a job where you had uh, a secret shopper that would come by? Would you raise your hand? Anybody like that? Okay. Um, I, I've worked in uh, a few places that have had that. Um, McDonald's, the Golden Arches. Yes, I was a fry technician. Um, uh, yes. And I worked in the back drive through and the front drive through and the counter, and I became, I was big time. I was a crew chief. Oh, Yes. I didn't have to wear one of those dumb caps. I got to wear a visor, and I had to wear a tie. Oh, it was cool. But at McDonald's, we had, once in a while, we had uh, secret shoppers that would come, secret customers, you know, that would order, and then they would give a report back to the store, and uh, they would grade, you know, how it went and, and who the, uh, the person that was helping you, what their name was, and, and they would explain, you know, how the food was and how clean everything was in the restaurant, and, and it was always such a big deal to the manager. And then I started working at Staples, and the same thing was true there. We would have a secret shopper come in at Staples, and, and we got to the point where we would try to figure out if that was the secret shopper because of the questions that they would ask, and, and uh, we would always have to like not point, oh, that's in aisle 13. We would actually have to go and take them to aisle 13 and point to where it is, and and ask them if they needed anything else, and just kind of be their, you know, helper for the entire time. And if we didn't do that, we got we got docked. And then I worked at AT&T as a retail sales associate there in Montana, and, and same thing. We had uh, we had secret shoppers come in, and and uh, we got to the point where we figured out we knew the different questions that they would ask, and so when they would always come in and and have a certain scenario, it was always the same, and so we. We got to learn what they they were doing there. We even got to the point where we thought it'd be cool to be secret shoppers ourselves. 
And so my wife and I signed up. I don't know how we came across this, but we signed up to be secret shoppers at Papa John's Pizza. And so uh, the idea was we actually get free pizza. Uh, they actually reimburse you for the amount of the pizza, but then you have to, you know, fill out a report and and uh, send it to the company there. And um, and uh, so we did that four or five times, and we would, uh, you know, we would have to pay attention to the employee, you know, if they're wearing their name badge and if they had the little thing on the top of their car that said Papa John's Pizza, and uh, we'd have to, you know, give a report on how nice they were and and what kind of bag they were carrying and then and then when we got to the got the pizza in we had to take like 15 pictures of it before we could ever eat it and uh it was always kind of like well let's eat it well no we gotta we gotta take certain angles and turn things turn the pizza upside down to get the picture of the the bottom of the crust and we're like we're ruining the pizza i mean the cheese getting stuck to the the bottom <laughs> this is not good uh, but we did that to try to save money and, and to have uh, to have some free pizza. And it was kind of fun to do a little bit. But, you know, and, e- and even some churches, though, I've heard of this. Some churches actually hire an outside company to send in secret church attenders to grade them. We have a couple guests this, this evening, and I'm wondering if that's what you are doing right now. <laughs> but some churches, uh, in fact, do that, where they uh, hire... A, a company to come in and, and kind of visit and observe and, and kind of give the pastor a report of how things went in the children's ministries and, and uh, you know, what they felt of the service and, and uh, their opinion of it. Um, and, and there's maybe some value in that, uh, although I don't, don't expect me to do that. You know, there's a, there's a good question here. What does, what does our community think of Cornerstone Baptist Church? That's a good question, isn't it? What kind of name does Cornerstone Baptist Church have in our community? And uh, I honestly want our church to have a good name in our community. I mean, a a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, Solomon said in Proverbs 22 and verse 1. It's good to have a good name in the community, isn't it? Uh, what uh, what What does our church family think of Cornerstone Baptist Church? I hope that we all love our church and and uh, appreciate what's going on here, and and uh, love each other, and and uh, I, I want our people, I want the people in our church happy with how things are going. But most important of all, what does the Lord think of Cornerstone Baptist Church? Now, I want our community, our, I want our church to have a good name in our community, and I want us and our church to be happy, and all of that. But ultimately, it's His church. And we better make sure that we are pleasing in His sight. Because ultimately, He's the one that's going to judge this church. Romans chapter 2 and verse 16, we're reminded it's the Lord who judges us. Because He says, Paul says in Romans 2.16, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. In Hebrews 4.13, it says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of our community. That's not what it says, does it? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of the deacon board. No, I have to do that once in a while, though. <laughs> 
We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He is the one we need to focus on pleasing as a church family. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. I'm here to say that many churches in our day and age of cultural relevance and, and uh, making sure that you know, we're, we're, we're sensitive to the needs of our community. And they have good intention and motivation of reaching people the gospel, but they end up becoming man-centric. Where the whole purpose of the church is to do good things like reach our community for Christ and to do good things like help people with their uh, physical needs. They're good things. We care too much about what the community thinks of their church and not enough about what God thinks of their church. And sadly, I believe that's exactly what happened at the church at Sardis. They fell into this trap. They thought that all was well and, and that they were living. But they forgot that their opinion wasn't the one that mattered the most. And really, I, again, I hope that we have a good name in our community and that we love our church as a church family. But, but if we have to choose pleasing God and having not the best name in the community, so be it. And there's going to potentially come a time in our culture today where that may happen, where we have to choose. Are we going to fit in with the community or are we going to please Christ? And are we going to line up with his word? The church of Sardis said, you know what? We're going to fit in with culture. We're going to have maybe a good name in our community, but to Jesus Christ, the one who weighed them, the one who matters the most, he was not pleased. So they were fully weighed by the Lord, and that led to next, they were found wanting by the Lord. The last part of verse 1, he said, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain for, that, that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. What a sad testimony. Now, in these seven letters here in Revelation 2 and 3, we see several churches that were not what they seemed on the outside. If you recall, the church at Ephesus appeared to have everything together, but unfortunately, they had left their first love. They kind of missed the most important part. They had all appearance of doing well and right, uh, you went in the church, I mean, it was well, it was a well-oiled machine. But their heart was far from the Lord. The church at Smyrna, they appeared to be a poor church. But according to the Lord Jesus, they were indeed rich in what mattered most. So you go to a church and, boy, they didn't have the nice technology and the nice seats, and maybe they didn't have an air-conditioned building, but, but boy, they... They had the right, they had the most important things right. The church of Laodicea, which we're going to look at in a couple weeks, this was a church that they thought they were rich and they had need of nothing. But in the Lord's eyes, they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So several of these churches appeared one way to the exterior to other people and maybe even to the community and even to the church family. 
But to the one who mattered most, he saw things a little bit differently. The church at Sardis was also more than meets the eye. It was a book that shouldn't have been judged by the cover. You see, they had a name that said that they were living, but according to the great judge of heaven and earth, they were as dead as a doornail. The name life may have even been in their church name. The doors may have been open and ministries perhaps were even happening, but according to the one who mattered most, they were completely dead. Over and over in Scripture, we see the emphasis on making sure that we work on the inner man and that we make sure that our heart is right with the Lord. We see the emphasis on the condition of the heart is way more important than the outward appearance. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, For the Lord seeth, and not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And that's definitely true in a church, and it's also true in the life of each individual believer. You and I can, as a church, we can put on this facade and, and, uh, and, and parade ourselves around as this church that has it all together, but the Lord knows the truth. And you and I as individual believers can do the same thing, can't we? Uh, We can dress right, we can look right, we can talk right, we can put on a smile when we get out of the car in the parking lot and come and say, hey brother, hey sister, how are you? But meanwhile, back at home, all is not well with our marriage or our children or even our own heart with God. And God wants us to be right with Him. He wants us to be in communion with Him. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul says to the Ephesians, he said, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. Not the outward appearance, but the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love You see, God wants us to be rooted and grounded in love in the inner man. The the place that maybe man can't see, but God can. And we need to focus there and emphasize most of our time and energy there versus our outward appearance. Psalm 51 and verse 10. It was David who wrote this psalm and he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This, of course, was after he was confronted by Nathan, who had said, Thou art the man. You're the one who has committed the sin and the great atrocity here in Israel. When he was caught in adultery, it wasn't that he was caught by man. He was caught by the Lord. And so David realized that he needed to have a clean heart. He realized that, look, I can keep acting like all is well in my kingdom but all is not well in my heart. And so he finally got right with God, and Psalm 51 was a cry for, of confession and repentance. Keep your finger here in uh, Revelation chapter 3, and turn over to Matthew 23, if you would. Matthew 23, I'd like to invite you to look at the words of Christ, the lowly Savior the kind Jesus who never said anything mean. Matthew 23. For those who are familiar with Matthew 23, you'll know this wasn't exactly uh, politically correct, uh, feel-good 
tickle your ears type of a message. Matthew 23, verse 25 says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are likened unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Look, what Jesus is saying here is, look, you may be able to fool everybody else that everything is just hunky-dory in your life, that everything is just handy-dandy, God looks way past the facade, way past the, uh, the exterior and looks directly into our hearts and he knows the condition of our heart and he knew the condition of the heart of the church at Sardis and what he saw was not pleasant. They thought everything was just going well. I mean, we are a church filled with life, they said. God said, you're dead. There's no life in you. You're empty. There's no life inside you because appearances are not everything. It needs to come from the heart. So when we look at the reputation of the heart or this church, we see it was fully weighed by the Lord and we need to be reminded that the Lord is the one who matters most to Cornerstone Baptist Church. It doesn't really matter what I think. It doesn't really matter what you think. It doesn't matter what our community thinks. It really ultimately matters what He thinks. Because one day we're going to have to give an account to Him for this church. But I want us to see, secondly, tonight, the remedy for this church. Because He doesn't just tell us how it is. He gives them a, a plan, a, a way of, uh, of remedy. Look here in verse number 2. He says, or I'm sorry, verse number 3. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. Therefore... Thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. What is this remedy for the church? What are some of the things they need to do to prevent uh, their church from being wiped out of existence? Well, first of all, he says to remember the past. To remember the past in verse 13 or verse 3. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard. Now, it's an important part of the Christian life to manage our memory, isn't it? In Philippians, we're told to forget those things which are behind so that we can press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The idea there is that we don't hang on to the past and just live in the good old days and live in the rearview mirror. We've got to look through the windshield in order to go forward and have an effective life. But there are some things that God does want us to remember, and the angel here is telling uh, the church here to remember some things. I read this statistic today, and I, I, don't, I don't really know how true it is, but I'll, I'll pretend like it is, uh, because I, I don't really understand all of this, but I'm going to kind of uh, expect it to be true. But the human brain consists of about one billion neurons. 
Again, I, I don't know how they come to that number. I don't know how they've counted those. <laughs> but each neuron then forms about 1,000 connections to other neurons, amounting to more than a trillion connections. If each neuron could only help store a single memory, <clears throat> running out of space would definitely be a problem. You might only have a few gigabytes of storage space in your brain, similar to the space of a small USB flash drive. Yet neurons, though, combine so that each one helps with many memories at a time, exponentially increasing the brain's memory storage capacity to something closer to around 2.5 petabytes. And a petabyte is a million gigabytes. So just to give us an idea, if your brain worked like a digital video recorder in a television, 2.5 million gigabytes would be enough to hold 3 million hours of television sh shows. You would have to leave the television running continuously for more than 300 years to use up all that storage. So God's given us a mind that can remember quite a bit. I know most of us can't remember what we had for breakfast yesterday. I get that. <laughs> Some of us forget where we leave the keys and... We forget our kids' names. When you have more than one, you're allowed to forget your kids' names. Because um, then it's just like, hey, you, you, okay, you. But let's use that storage capacity to remember things that matter for eternity, to help us prepare for eternity. And this church needed to remember kind of where they came from as a church, maybe how things started why they started as a church, their main mission that they had when they were first started as a church. And they had kind of gotten away from some of those things, and the angel here is saying, remember why you guys started as a church. Remember some of the values you had as a church when things were just kicking off. But now that, now that you've got all the equipment and all the chairs and all the people, you think you don't need those values anymore. And that's what the angel was kind of saying. And I just want to take a moment and uh, let us know that there are some things we are called to remember. As believers, it's healthy to remember His sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. It's, remember, it's, it's healthy for us to go back in our minds to that place on Mount Calvary where Jesus became our sin and took the penalty for our sin there on the cross. And think about the fact that he did that, and that's why it's healthy for us as a church on a somewhat regular basis to remember that through our communion service. We have one coming up in, in August, and I'm looking forward to that. And remember, it was Christ who instituted that special feast on the night before he, he faced the cross for the purpose of helping us to remember Him, His sacrifice, and His promise that He's coming back. We need to remember the work that God has done in our lives and the the salvation that we have tasted of and, and, and a lot of the blessings along the way of life. It's good for us to remember those things. This church needed to remember the past. Secondly, it needed to recognize the present. Again, in verse number three, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard. And then he says, and hold fast and repent. This means it's time to get right now. It's time to understand where you are to not, to, in other words, get your head out of the sand and uh, understand that you're not doing just wonderful at the moment. 
that you may have a name that says you live, but you're dead and you need to understand that and you need to get right with me. He says, and hold fast and repent. I read a story about uh, this family. Uh, they were living in England way back several uh, decades ago and uh, the, they had two boys and, and mom and dad one night decided to go out with, uh, with a friend uh, for dinner left the two boys home alone. Now, I was in a family with just two boys. It was just my brother and I. And when we got left alone, let's just say we didn't have like a prayer meeting and a Bible study every time we were left alone. Uh, let's just kind of put it, we'll leave it there, okay? Um, we didn't always get along. We didn't always play like we should have and uh, kept all the rules and all that. Well, such was the case with these two boys. And uh, so they did their thing, and finally mom and dad came home after their, uh, their dinner time, and, and uh, they, they walked up, and, and all the lights were off, and they didn't really hear anything going on inside, and they're like, this is strange. Uh, normally, they would have expected the kids to be there and greeting the mom and dad. That wasn't the case. So they kind of walk in and trying to find what's going on, and no kids anywhere. Finally, they get to the living room, and, and they see on this little table a little mound of broken porcelain. And it was the porcelain of a very valuable vase that mom loved, and that was her pride and joy possession. And it was broken in this little heap. And there was a note next to it, and it said, Dear Mom and Dad, we're terribly sorry. We broke your vase. But don't worry, we put ourselves to bed without supper. <laughs> now, do you, think, do you think Dad read that and he got irate and angry? I'm going to go show those kids a piece of my mind. They're never going to do that again. No, they, they had taken care of judgment on their own, haven't they? You know, he didn't need to do anything. They had already repented. And that's what the angel here is telling the church. Hold fast and repent. Repent so the Lord will not have to judge you. Get right with me right now before I have to come and bring judgment upon you. And so he says, recognize the present and make sure you get right. You have an opportunity to do so. And then he says, not only remember the past, recognize the present, but also be ready for the future. The Lord warns here that if there's not self-judgment, he will come upon that church as a thief and break up their testimony once and for all. The last part of verse 3, it says, If therefore thou shalt not watch will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Of course, it's, you know, a thief's not going to, you know, text you and say, hey, is now a good time to come and rob you? You know, they're not going to Facebook message you and say, hey, are you home? Door's locked. Uh, which window should we break? They're not going to do that. They're going to come as a thief. And the Lord says he's going to do that as well uh, and uh, not... And, and take away their testimony. Now, sometimes we get, we get to the point where we rest on the promise that Christ will build His church 
and the gates of hell will not prevail, prevail against it. And I am thankful for that promise. That promise is not given to every specific church and uh, does not, in other words, it doesn't guarantee that every individual church, church will always exist and be a bright and shining light for God's glory. There have been churches that were once a great lighthouse for Christ who are no longer a church at all. I've heard briefly the story. I'm not an expert on the story of what happened here, but not even a mile from here, there was a church called Eastern Avenue Baptist Church there on Eastern Avenue. It is no longer Eastern Avenue Baptist Church. It is now Vien Min Buddhist Center. I don't know what happened. For all I know, it was it ended well, but at some point, the Lord just came as a thief and removed their light, removed their opportunity to be a lighthouse in this community. Well, I do pray that God continues to bless our church and that the light of the gospel continues to shine brightly from Cornerstone Baptist Church and from our people for generations to come, but I'm telling you, it's not a guarantee. Now, yes, the gate of hell will not prevail against the church, but that doesn't mean that God won't come and, and blow out the candlestick and remove our light. We need to continually, uh, presently, keep the right priorities as a church. And when we need to make corrections to not pretend like there's not a problem, but to make sure that we get right with the Lord. It's interesting to note that in... Western Asia, where a lot of these churches, all of really all of these churches were located, uh, were all in now what's called Turkey, it was once the brightest spot on earth for gospel witness. But today it is one of the darkest. And the reason for it is these churches didn't get the hint. They got the letter, but they went, that applies to my brother, but not to me. I'm fine. I don't need to change. I hope that we'll all take, take this individually and look in the mirror instead of looking across the aisle, across uh, a couple seats down and saying, boy, I hope so-and-so is listening to this tonight. <laughs> Maybe you should say, I hope I'm listening to this tonight. So we have the remedy for this church, and I want us to notice thirdly and quickly tonight, pizza's awaiting. Not really, it's not here yet, so don't fret. But number three, I want us to see the remnant of this church. Look in verse number four, and I'm so thankful for this. It says, Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I want to remind us tonight that though it does seem like a lot of people and, and certainly culture here in America, but even, even Christians, even Christianity has, is shifting away from the Lord. It, it is sad, but I do want to remind us tonight that there are still 7,000 prophets who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
Unless we get the mentality of Elijah saying, I'm the only one that wants to do right. We're the only church that wants to do right. We're not the only church that wants to do right, and I'm thankful for that. There's many even here in our own area that are standing for truth. And so there's always been and always will be a remnant, a faithful few who will stay true to the Lord. And such was the case here in this church in Sardis. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. A couple thoughts about the remnant of this church and share those with you briefly tonight. First of all, they were virtuous. This remnant was definitely virtuous. Again, they have not defiled their garments. They decided that they're going to be the weird ones. The ones who didn't go with the flow of culture. These were the ones who stayed true to Christ and to His Word, even when others were conforming to culture left and right. These were the Daniels, the Shadrachs, the Meshachs, and the Abednegoes of Sardis. These are the ones who purposed in their heart that they would not defile themselves with the culture around them. That they were going to be virtuous and pure. Robert Murray McShane wrote to Dan Edwards after after, uh, Dan Edwards' ordination as a missionary. He said, In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. And many times, and I don't know who the pastor of Sardis was, but I suspect he was a busy pastor. The problem is it's not busy pastors that are awful weapons in the hand of God. No, it's holy pastors, holy ministers, and holy church members that are an awful weapon in the hand of God. In our culture today, purity and true virtue has lost its value, gone out the window. No longer is it cool and acceptable to be chaste and pure. I'm telling you, the Bible still says some of these things like, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. God's plan still in 2019, I know this is going to shock our culture if they were to hear this, but for a man and a woman to stand at their wedding altar pure, Wearing white because they have deserved it. And I realize that, oh, that's not culturally acceptable anymore. I'm telling you, it's biblically acceptable and biblically commanded. And I, for one, here at Cornerstone Baptist Church, want to encourage and and challenge and and push our children to do that, to grow up and and, uh, be at their wedding altar pure and giving the greatest gift they could give their spouse, which is their purity. You can, give your, you can give your spouse a brand new sports car. You can give them a brand new house. The biggest rock on the wedding ring you could think of. But I'm telling you, the greatest gift that young people you could give your spouse on your wedding day is your virginity, your purity. God's plan is that you would do that. Dearly beloved, Peter says, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. 
Paul tells Timothy, flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. I read a quote this week that I thought was good for the young people to hear. And here's the quote. A girl's heart should be so close to God that a guy would have to seek God to find it. I thought that was kind of neat. So there you go, faith. A girl's heart should be so close to God that a guy would have to seek God to find it. A girl who wants to attract godly guys will best be able to do so by drawing close to God herself, by being near to the heart of God, which we sang about a little bit ago. If she presents herself as an easy target for guys who have the wrong intentions, there are plenty out there who will be glad to take her purity. But if she walks close to God and lives by the principles of the Bible, she will find wisdom in choosing who she dates and who would be a good mate. Proverbs 31, verse 10 The writer of this proverb, it was not necessarily Solomon. He said this, Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? Oh, I pray and hope that as God looks at Cornerstone Baptist Church, He's able to find a whole host of virtuous women. And by the way, men as well. Men who have their hearts right with God and our eyes right with God. I realize we live in a day where uh, the wrong thing to be seen is very accessible, much more than it's ever been in history of mankind. We have, as Steve Jobs once said, the internet in our pocket. How convenient, but also how dangerous for the young men in our culture today, and also not just young men, but married men as well. We need to guard our eyes. We need to be virtuous, just like the faithful few here in Sardis. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments. Would that describe you? Would that describe me? I hope the answer is yes. So they were virtuous, and then secondly, they were victorious. They were victorious in verse 4. They have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. A lot of explanation can go into verse number five. I will just say this. I would encourage you to do study on your own as far as all of those things there. It's not necessarily talking about a conditional salvation um, because once we're saved, we're always saved. We can't lose our salvation. Um, but I do want to point out the word overcometh. Sometimes we think, am I trying hard enough? Am I going to overcome? Um, Brother Terry reminded me of this, and I appreciate this. 1 John chapter 5. If you would just quickly turn over there, and we're almost done tonight. 1 John chapter 5, and then look in verse 5. He says, who is he that overcometh? Well, let's back up in verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. But who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. See, the overcomer is the one who has placed his faith in Christ and then acts upon that faith. 
Because once again, faith without works is dead. Doesn't mean we have to have works in order to have faith, but uh, our faith should produce works in our life. And these believers here in Sardis, because of their virtue, they were victorious and were promised some wonderful blessings, and I'm not sure exactly how they all play out. But I do know this, that God does bless those who decide to honor and follow and be obedient to Him. And so what blessings await you? And what blessings perhaps have you been forgoing because you don't want to be virtuous? Because you want to stay in your sin. I'm telling you, you're missing out on the greater blessing. I promise you. What an what a interesting story that we find here in the church at Sardis. I hope that all of us will learn the lessons about the fact that, most importantly, we answer to the Lord. We don't necessarily need to worry too much about the community or even what each other thinks about the church. We need to make sure that we are pleasing to God. We cannot be content to just have the right appearance. We need to have the right heart. We need to work on the inner man and make sure that our heart is pleasing in the eyes of God because He sees it no matter how hard we try to hide it. We need to take the time to remember the past. We need to recognize the present and, and uh, get right when we know we need to get right. And maybe there's some here tonight who would say, you know what, that's me. There are some things I need to make right in my life, and I'm, God's giving you an opportunity to right now, and, and I would encourage you to do that tonight. Lest He comes as a thief in your life and brings judgment. God still does judge sin. Now, He's not going to cast you into hell if you're saved, and I'm thankful for that truth. But He does have a way of making sure that our sin will find us out. And then to live a virtuous life, a great challenge for all of us. Let's pray together tonight. Lord, we do thank you for the lessons we can learn from this church. And help us, Lord, to not just be good hearers. And Lord, I appreciate the attention of these in the room today. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to heed what we've just heard. Help us to make decisions in our lives that would be pleasing to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have uh, a revival. Lord, help us to not be thinking that all is well, but really inside, according to you, we're all dead. Oh, Lord, I don't want, ever want to have that testimony as a church or as an individual. I pray, Lord, that you would help us tonight to make the decisions necessary that you're working in our hearts about. I pray these things in Jesus' name.